No matter what you're a fan of, Texas has the trip for you. There's the trip to Texas and the trip. Or maybe you're the kind of fan who'd prefer a trip to Texas or a trip. Either way, go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. Introducing Celebration Key, your key to paradise. Unlock Carnival's all-new exclusive destination at Grand Bahama, where you can dive into clear lagoons, try all the water sports, or unwind on a mile-long, pristine beach with breathtaking sunset views. This vacation paradise has it all. Celebration Key, welcoming guests in summer 2025. Carnival, choose fun. Copyright 2024 Carnival Corporation, all rights reserved. Ships Registry, the Bahamas and Panama. The Bowery Boys, episode 117, The New York Adventures of Mark Twain. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young with a special solo show for you this week. I know I always say this special, but this one is very special. I begin with a quote. Returning to New York after an absence of nine years, I find much improvement to it. A great moral improvement. Some think it is because I've been away, but the more intelligent think that it is because I have come back. That was the beginning of a toast by Mark Twain to a room full of distinguished gentlemen that had gathered at DeMonico's restaurant on December 6, 1900, 110 years ago. Mark Twain was America's greatest man of letters in the 19th century, producing some of the most beloved books ever written. And of course, this year his name has been in the news and on the bestseller charts with the release of his complete, unedited, uncensored autobiography, much of it written during his stay here in New York. We immediately associate Mark Twain with the Mississippi River, with whitewashed fences, Tom Sawyer, Huck Finn. But in fact, Mark Twain, a.k.a. Samuel Clemens, was also a regular of the streets of New York. He lived here multiple times during his life, from his early days as a rough, very, very rough, restless 17-year-old, to later to his distinguished days as an elderly man in white. Mark Twain was a pivotal celebrity in New York during the Gilded Age, which is kind of odd, actually, given that the term the Gilded Age was actually coined by Mark Twain as a satirical jab at American exuberance. But along the way, along the years, New York changed Mark Twain. In this show, I'll tell you a little bit about his times in the city, taking you through Manhattan, Brooklyn, and the Bronx, and almost 60 years of New York history. Now, I have two warnings for you. This is, a, this is a different kind of a podcast. I've specifically put in a lot of places and addresses in this particular show so that you can go out and fashion your very own personal walking tour, if you'd like, of some of the best-known Mark Twain hangouts. And I should also warn you that this is a sort of a distorted bio because it's just focusing on New York City. I spend almost no time anywhere else for a fuller, clearer picture of who Mark Twain actually was, I would recommend supplementing this episode with something a little bit more straightforward, either another podcast or one of several excellent biographies that are out. So, and in honor of Mark Twain's 175th birthday, which just happened a few days ago, I present to you a story of the man who became known as the Belle of New York. 
artist formerly known as Samuel Clemens spent his very first day in New York on August 24th, 1853. Now, New York was doing quite well for itself, actually, in 1853. Half a million people living on an island that was fast becoming America's most prosperous city, thanks, obviously, to that busy port, and to a growing number of millionaire men of industry who sprouted up here. The city was celebrating its successes by throwing itself a world's fair set up in a lavish crystal pavilion on a former potter's field that would one day be called Bryant Park. A fair displaying the mights of American technology and brand new inventions like the elevator. Sam was 17 years old at the time of his visit. He had been raised in Hannibal, Missouri, which is not such a bad place, really, if you're going to be in Missouri in the 1850s. But it wasn't really offering any real excitement or opportunity if you're a wanderer or a budding writer like Sam was. If you're ever in that neck of the woods, by the way, it's a pretty cute place to visit. They have a nice, quaint little downtown that's right along the water and a recreation of some of Mark Twain's early childhood. Now, looking for a little work and some adventure, Clemens took a series of trains, stagecoaches, and steamboats, altogether a five-day trip to get from Missouri to New York. He stayed in the city in a modest boarding house on Duane Street and found work as a typesetter for a small printing house at 95 Cliff Street. Now, there's not really much of Cliff Street remaining today, and the actual place where his employer, John Gray, had his printing house, where it was situated, has been obliterated and it's been replaced today with a housing complex. Now, the reason that this first trip is especially important to people who are into the history of Mark Twain is because it's here that he wrote his very first letter home, the first of thousands of letters written by Clemens. He said, quote, you will doubtless be little surprised and somewhat angry when you receive this and find me so far from home. During his wanderings that first day, he even managed to go up and visit that Crystal Palace. Clemens would only really stay here in New York for a couple months before drifting off to Philadelphia and beyond. His real New York breakthrough, however, would come later. He would be 30 years old and had already seen a lot of America by this time as a steamboat pilot on the Mississippi, as a gold miner in Nevada, and finally getting work as a journalist in that wild, wild west town of San Francisco. In 1865, Twain wrote a really silly story about a frog and sent it off to his friend and kindred spirit, the writer Artemis Ward, who happened to live in New York at that time. Ward read the story and passed it on to this journal called the Saturday Press. Now, the press had a small office on Spruce Street near Park Row, which during this period was the heart of the New York publishing world. And today, that area is right off the entrance of the Brooklyn Bridge. Now, this journal, the Saturday Press, was extremely short-lived and, in fact, is mostly mentioned today because of what I'm about to tell you. The Saturday Press published the story, which we know today as The Celebrated Jumping Frog of Calaveras County. This kooky story was a smash hit with New Yorkers, and Clemens was immediately inundated with other writing offers. Most importantly, this story was the very first big-time byline of Clemens' pen name, Mark Twain. There was a strange fascination that New Yorkers had about life in the West, and Twain's folky ways of description were pretty bold and different for the day, and he soon became a little bit of a minor celebrity, albeit absent from the city. So in January of 1867, Twain corrected that, coming to New York and checking into the Metropolitan Hotel. If that sounds vaguely familiar for those who have listened to recent podcasts, the hotel was situated on land that was also known as Niblo's Garden at Broadway and Prince. 
On May 6, 1867, he made his major New York speaking debut at Cooper Union, the biggest stage in town, and a venue made famous by Abraham Lincoln's famous speech in 1860 that did marvels in getting him elected president. Twain actually started hitting the lecture circuit in San Francisco, regaling audiences about his travels. But this would be one of his largest audiences yet. 2,000 people in attendance, and at least that many, turned away at the door. Quote, Selnum has so large an audience been so uniformly pleased as the one that listened to Mark Twain's quaint remarks last evening, proclaimed the New York Times. Twain, of course, would go on to national fame just from these lecture tours alone. Now, Mark Twain also shared something else with Lincoln, an important ally, the leader of Brooklyn's most famous Plymouth church, the Reverend Henry Ward Beecher. These were the years here before Beecher's adultery scandals of the 1870s, and Twain was one of thousands who came to Brooklyn Heights to listen to Beecher's sermons. A month after Twain's great Cooper Union speech, members of Beecher's congregation were planning a five-month Mediterranean Ocean voyage with a destination to the Holy Land aboard an old steamship called the Quaker City. Now, Beecher couldn't join them, and neither to Twain's own personal consternation could the Civil War general William Tecumseh Sherman, who was supposed to be the star of the show here. Twain, of course, ever the wanderer, went along anyway, delighted by the sights of Europe and sometimes horrified by the behavior of his fellow passengers. These devout, prominent Brooklynites, who would eventually go on to become the occasional objects of mockery in Mark Twain's 1969 bestseller, Innocence Abroad. Twain wrote, Such was our daily life on board the ship. Solemnity, decorum, dinner, dominoes, prayer, slander. It was not lively enough for a pleasure trip, but if we had only had a corpse, it would have made a noble funeral excursion. Innocence Abroad would be the best-selling book of his career and kick off three decades of extraordinary output from Mark Twain, including in 1872 another travel collection, Roughing It, the Adventures of Tom Sawyer in 1876, 1882 came The Prince and the Pauper, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn in 1884, and A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court in 1889. Bolstered by hundreds of personal appearances throughout the country, Mark Twain became one of America's most well-known personalities and best-selling novelists. Now, during this productive period, he also chose to live close to the city, first in Buffalo, New York, with his new wife Olivia, then on to Hartford, Connecticut, where the pair started a family and raised three daughters. Being close to New York allowed Clemens to cultivate his professional connections here. He continued writing for various newspapers and maintained some pretty notable friendships in the city. Perhaps the most notable of all during this period was the 18th president of the United States, Ulysses S. Grant, who lived in his later years at 66th Street right off of Central Park. Twain made such regular appearances in the parlor of former President Grant that he claimed himself to be an unofficial member of the Grant family. With the former president's finances decimated by some rather unpleasant Wall Street shenanigans, which I won't get into here, in 1884, Twain suggested Grant put his autobiography to paper. If you read some of Twain's own writing, including some of the stuff that's in this new autobiography, you can tell that just being able to help a former president regain a shred of financial stability before his death was probably one of the things that Twain was most proud about in his own life. Believe it or not, Grant's memoir was actually published by Twain himself, or rather, his very own publishing group, which was called Webster & Company. The Webster of Webster & Company was actually Twain's nephew, Charles, 
who operated from a apparently sumptuous office on Fifth Avenue and 14th Street. For several years, Charles was Mark Twain's professional representative in the city, which made things sort of precarious when the relationship between the author and his nephew went south. This is why they say never work with family members. This is one of the great object lessons of this moral in the 19th century. Webster was eventually bought out of his own company and replaced, but the damage had been done. In 1894, the publishing company went bankrupt. A few years later, of course, Twain would transfer to a more stable publishing house, that of Harper and Brothers, the respected publisher of magazines like Harper's Bazaar and Harper's Weekly, and the publishing house that was started by a former mayor of New York, James Harper. Mark Twain himself would have many, many financial difficulties during the 1880s and 1890s, so luckily, he had plenty of places to drown some of those sorrows, namely some of the best-known gentlemen's clubs of the day. In 1888, Twain became the most prominent member of one peculiar clubhouse on the south side of Gramercy Park. The Players Club was founded in 1888 by Edwin Booth, the distinguished actor and, more notoriously, older brother to a certain John Wilkes Booth. He started the club as an exclusive place where actors could dine and network amid luscious furnishings in a building designed by Stanford White of McKim Meaden White. The club, while at its heart, was in the theater and was populated by theater folk. Its membership was, and continues to be, actually, a who's who of Manhattan luminaries. Twain would be a regular at the players, bent over a pool table or caught up in a poker game, and was a frequent orator at late dinners here. For a time, actually, in 1893, in the midst of his financial troubles, he even lived upstairs at the players. By the 1890s, several of his books had actually been turned into plays, and some of them, like the 1890 version of The Prince and the Pauper, debuted along New York's newly jailed theater district on Broadway between 34th and 42nd Street. But it would be others that would find success in adapting Mark Twain. Twain himself only tried once to write a play, that play was called Is He Dead? And it was never produced in his own lifetime. Believe it or not, Is He Dead? didn't make its Broadway debut until 2007. brand new century, Samuel Clemens would at last return to the city to live with his entire family. After moving from their Hartford home and living in Europe for a few years, Clemens and his family moved to Manhattan in October of 1900. His address was 14 West 10th Street, which was right off of Fifth Avenue. Now, of course, at this time, Fifth Avenue was in what would become its waning years of high society. But this didn't matter too much for Twain and his wife, Olivia, who enjoyed strolling around nearby Washington Square Park. Now, something had happened since his visits in the last century. Twain had left New York in the 1890s, broke and on the verge of an uncertain legacy. He came back something of an icon. In 1900, he was 65 years old and was about to experience one of the most intense moments of his career. 
Almost immediately, Twain was booked for dozens of congratulatory dinners and roasts this year and the next. By the end of 1901, the health of his wife demanded a less draftier abode with a little bit more access to fresh air and sunshine. So they decided to move to what I would call their most interesting residence, a lovely mansion that overlooked the Hudson River that had once belonged to the parents of Theodore Roosevelt. A mansion built amid a string of elegant houses, all built by the ultra-rich that lay along the neighborhood of Riverdale in the brand spanking new New York borough of the Bronx. That house today we call Wave Hill. It's still preserved in its turn-of-the-century glory here, and it serves as a botanical garden. And it's personally one of my favorite places to go in the city. It's relatively remote today. It was even more so in 1901. Twain was seemingly in high spirits in his new home. Upon hearing of a rash of burglaries in the Riverdale area, Twain remarked of the burglars, quote, If they would only let me know when they intend on honoring me, I shall see that they have a full assortment of good wines and a full cupboard, and I shall also tie my dog so that he will not disturb their efforts, and plated ware will not be palmed off on them, unquote. But although Twain had the levity to build a tree house in a chestnut tree on the lawn of Wave Hill, he spent a lot of time here worrying about his wife's health. Doctors actually recommended she return to Europe to convalesce, which, given the long ride on an ocean liner, doesn't seem like a wise idea to me personally. And so off the family went to Europe. But sadly, on a beautiful June day in 1904, in a villa in Florence, Mark Twain's wife, Olivia Langdon Clemens, died. Six months later, in December of 1904, Clemens returned again to the city, which now treated him like a walking, talking memorial. This would be his final and most significant move into the city, moving back to town with his daughter Clara into a townhouse at 21 Fifth Avenue. He would live there until 1908. He didn't love it, but for posterity's sake, it seemed like an appropriate place for him to nest. For the house was built in 1840 by renowned architect James Renwick, and Renwick built it for another writer. Washington Irving. Almost immediately, Mark Twain's parlor was booked with celebrities and Manhattan elite, billionaires like Andrew Carnegie, writers like William Dean Howes, and inspirational figures like Helen Keller. The house was filled with newfangled technologies and gadgets that interest the writer. But I would say the most significant piece of furniture in the house was a grand billiard table, which he had gotten as a Christmas present. Clemens was so into playing pool that he moved his table into a bedroom and slept in the study. But in a way, the new billiard room was also still the study and his office and its preferred place to entertain all of his rich male friends. These were Clemens' rules, quote, The games began right after luncheon, daily and continuing to midnight with two hours intermission for dinner and music, unquote. And all the while, of course, clutching a cigar, which would be, of course, one of his lifelong habits. This was, of course, a minor accessory compared to Mark Twain's most striking change, which happened around December of 1906, when he began wearing that signature white suit. He debuted it at a function in Washington, but it soon became his New York uniform, and it was quite impossible to go anywhere in the city without a minute. Although this look was influenced by Southern apparel, it was clearly meant as a way to stand out in society and to stand out in these rooms of gentlemen in all their black suits and silk hats. Myself, I don't know how one keeps a suit white in the streets of New York, especially during the winter and especially in this period of time. 
I can only assume he must have had a couple dozen of them in his closet. New Yorkers had every opportunity to catch a glimpse of the man in white. He managed to break away from Poole and family to keep a rigorous schedule of speaking engagements, honorary dinners, and festive events. He earned his nickname, The Bell of New York, regaling all sorts of audiences at all sorts of venues, both temperance societies and alcohol-soaked nights at gentlemen's clubs, the throngs at the old Met Opera House, and the ones at the newly built Carnegie Hall. Fundraisers of the Waldorf Astoria, and once in 1906, an international billiards exhibition at the old Madison Square Garden back in the days when it was actually next to Madison Square. But there were a few places where your chances of running into the writer were just a tiny bit greater. One of these places was the famed Delmonico's Restaurant, in particular the location that was at 5th Avenue and 44th Street. One of the parties of the decade was thrown here in December of 1905 for Twain's 70th birthday. Naturally, his shtick was in full force during this birthday dinner, delivering a wry monologue to 170 of his closest friends. But you didn't need to be famous, necessarily, to see the iconic author. Just as he had once done as a 17-year-old in 1853, Twain loved to stroll constantly through the city, bedecked in that white suit, and was usually accompanied by his biographer, Alfred Bigelow Payne. He would meander up Fifth Avenue during rush hour. He'd walk past St. Patrick's Cathedral as services were letting out any chance to connect with his public. Now, I mentioned his biographer, but it was also at this time that Mark Twain hired a stenographer and started putting together his own autobiography the complete rambling collection of brilliant non-sequiturs that would famously be locked away for 100 years and was finally rolled out beginning in 2010. Twain would dictate his thoughts from his Fifth Avenue apartment, meandering from tale to tale, talking while looking out at the window down the street or possibly contemplating interrupting himself to launch into a game of pool upstairs. Although old and growing weak, he still kept many speaking engagements. His last one in New York was on May 7th, 1909 naturally, at Delmonico's. By 1909, he had moved out of the city. He moved to Stormfield, his newly built home in Reading, Connecticut, to finally, it seems, enjoy the privacy of his final years. This was not to be his final appearance in New York, however. Mark Twain died on April 21st, 1910. On to his final resting place next to his wife in Elmira, New York, his body was actually taken back to Manhattan. Arriving at Grand Central Terminal, which at this time was still not quite finished yet, and carried in a procession up to a funeral service at the Brick Presbyterian Church at 5th Avenue and 37th Street. Thousands streamed into the church to pay their respects. One admirer threw a reef onto the coffin, which said, from one who has read Puddinhead Wilson. Naturally, Twain was still wearing his white suit. Now, many of the places I've mentioned that were important to Twain are still standing. His 10th Street townhouse that I talked about, that's still there. We mentioned it even in our Spooky Stories Ghost Podcast as the legendary House of Death, where Twain's spirit is alleged to be hanging out. Sadly, his final residence at 21 Fifth Avenue, that house that Washington Irving also lived in, unbelievably, this place was torn down in April of 1954. And its place today rises the Brevert apartment complex. Now, I know I've been rambling. I know this is really long, but I do have to end here with another quote, something that Mark Twain wrote in June of 1867 for a San Francisco newspaper, something that I think typifies everything that's good and bad about New York and something that he was able to see quite clearly at that time. Quote, There is something about this ceaseless buzz and hurry and bustle that keeps a stranger in a state of unwholesome excitement all the time, 
and makes him restless and uneasy and saps from him all the capacity to enjoy anything or to take a strong interest in any matter whatsoever, a something which impels him to try to do everything and yet permits him to do nothing. He's a boy in a candy shop, could choose quickly if there were but one kind of candy, but is hopelessly undetermined in the midst of a hundred kinds. A stranger feels unsatisfied here a good part of the time. He starts to a library, changes, and moves towards a theater, changes again, and thinks he will visit a friend, goes within a biscuit toss of a picture gallery, a billiard room, a beer cellar, and a circus, in succession, and finally drifts home into bed, without having really done anything or gone anywhere. He doesn't go anywhere, because he can't go everywhere, I suppose. Well, thank you very much for indulging me on this particular episode. I just wanted to make sure I got it exactly right. I am also Missouri-born, like Mark Twain, and and when you're growing up there, you are presented with the legacy of Mark Twain, like when you're in diapers. So it was a story that was very close to my heart. Please visit our blog, BoweryBoysPodcast.com, where I'll have some photographs of Mark Twain and some of the places that are significant to his story here in New York City. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. No matter what you're a fan of, Texas has the trip for you. There's the trip to Texas and the trip. Or maybe you're the kind of fan who'd prefer a trip to Texas or a trip. Either way, go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours.